welcome everyone and thank you so much for being here tonight for Rise Like Lions, which we were thinking of rebranding Rise Like Three Lions. We do realize that the um, unexpected success in the football has led to a titanic clash this evening, but we're so happy that you're all here for this very special event to celebrate poetry and protest. Um, it's all in honor of a brilliant book which is available to buy from uh, Newham Books. It's Rise Like Lions by Ben Ockrey. Um, I think uh, poetry has never been so relevant and urgent. And as Ben says, when we feel no one is telling us the truth, it's then that poetry can step forward as a new force in the world. So tonight you will hear from some very special people, uh, Helena Kennedy, Giles Dooley, Laurie Penny, David Calder, and our very special extra guest, uh, Zoe Beddow. Um, as well as our host tonight, who is Ben Ockrey. He's going to speak to all of our uh, readers, and then they're going to read their poems. And then at 8, we will be screening the second half of the football. Um, so thank you all, and please welcome Ben. Thank you all very much. I don't think there's ever been a an event where poetry, protest, politics, and football <laughs> have conjoined in a single session. But that's what we have today. And the reason for it is really quite simple. Um, first of all, we're living in a kind of unprecedented time in terms of the voices of, of anger and protest spreading through the world. Also, it's a time in which there's a, a kind of an upsurge of political poetry. And when there is so much political poetry in the world, it's usually a sign that the world is in a bad way. Or at least it's a sign that there are a lot of problems that obsess and trouble and anger us. Well, it all seems to be happening this week. Trump is probably in town, spreading disruption. Brexit is beleaguering the nation, doesn't go away. We've had Windrush, we still suffer it. We've had the Grenfell Tower disaster, we still suffer it. We have refugees perishing off the shores of Europe. We have migration demonized, prisons groaning, the Me Too campaign, poverty spreading throughout the world. We have Mexican wars still being threatened. It's all happening, and politics is the shout in the streets. The idea for the book is really quite simple. 100 protest poems from all across the world in as many languages as I could find. I read over 10,000 poems to distill down to these 100. I've got poems from as many countries as I could find on a map and from all generations. Um, but tonight, you're going to be hearing from so many different voices and I'm going to begin by reading a couple of lines and a poem. This is from the introduction. For poetry is often roused into being by the ways in which power throttles life and spirit. It is a protest of the soul against the structures and injustices of the world. It is natural that poetry should be roused by injustice, for poetry is the sister of justice, the brother of suffering, and anything that makes the human being cry out touches the core of the human from which poetry rises. You heard the word justice mentioned there, um, and that's going to relate very strongly to my first guest, but before we go there, I want to start with an iconic poem, and a poem that actually begins the collection. I really want to tell you, first of all, that the title, Rise Like Lions, which Daisy was thinking of re renaming Rise Like Three Lions for the Day, <laughs> comes from Shelley. It comes from a very famous poem of his called The Mask of Anarchy, which he wrote in the 19th century in reaction to the Peterloo massacres. He was in Italy at the time, but distances doesn't make any difference to poets. They understand that the voice can spread across the seas and across time. So the first poem I'm going to read to open the day is Jerusalem 
by William Blake. Fittingly, Jerusalem. And did those feet in ancient time walk upon England's mountains green? And was the holy Lamb of God on England's pleasant pastures seen? And did the divine countenance shine forth upon our clouded hills? And was Jerusalem builded here among these dark satanic mills? Bring me my bow of burning gold. Bring me my arrow of desire. Bring me my spear, O clouds, unfold. Bring me my chariots of fire. I will not cease from mental fight, nor shall my sword sleep in my hand till we have built Jerusalem in England's green and pleasant land. And my sword will not sleep in my hand till we have built Jerusalem in the world's vast and pleasant land. I wish to call my first guest tonight. It's uh, the distinguished one of the country's most distinguished lawyers. She is Helena, Baroness Helena Kennedy QC. She has spent her professional life giving voice to those who have least voice within the system, championing civil liberties and promoting human rights. To me, she is the embodiment of the fight for human rights. She's a dear friend, and she has used her extraordinarily varied platforms, including the House of Lords, to argue for social justice in the land. She is a veritable force of nature, Helena Kennedy. Well, ben, this is such an honor to be invited to join you tonight. And, and also just a thrill to see so many people who have not been persuaded to spend the night <laughs> doing other things, but who love poetry enough, believe enough in change, and obviously are admirers of yours. <laughs> Helena, we've talked a lot about poetry and politics over the years. Do you, um, do you as, as, a, as a champion of, of human rights, do you find that poetry is powerful within a struggle like that? I, I've always loved poetry, and I always have a, a book of poems beside my bed, you know, amongst the pile of things that I'm, I'm reading. And I, that's been true since I was quite young. Um, and I, um, I actually have said that human rights is where law becomes poetry, because I do actually believe that it engages with some of the most profound yearnings that, that people have have in expressing their own humanity, yeah. the desire to love and be loved, the, 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 um, the need for self-expression, um, the yearnings for meaning and to understand the purpose of life. And all those things are what inform uh, human rights. And, and so for me, it, the, the, it, there is a poetry in the work that I do. And I often use poetry, and I'm always ferreting and looking for poetry um, to use it when I'm making speeches about human rights, to, to make it touch that stuff which I think human rights is about. Um, and, um, and, and I do that when I'm addressing juries as well, mm, is that to, to enliven language mm. and to find metaphor and imagery that somehow makes it uh, speak to those inner pulses that we have, which are about our better selves. Ah, thank you very much. Do you want to talk about the, the poems you've chosen to read today? Well, uh, listen, Do you I, have any reasons? I, I, love, the, I love this book, and, and, and I was introduced to a whole set of new poems that I didn't know at all, and, and was reminded of poems that I, I was very familiar with. And so it was hard to make choices, I have to say. I mean, there was Yeats, because I, I did many of the big Irish trials, and I, and I come from an Irish immigrant background, so um, the Yeats poem about the centre holding and, and all of that business, about when civil war was destroying his, you know, his country, about what you think might happen from it, and the slouching of the beast... Uh, um, you know, towards, towards Bethlehem. Towards Bethlehem. Yeah. It's a, an incredible... It still gives a shiver down my spine. 
Anyway, I, um, I, I, and so I was very tempted by other poems. I also had the great good fortune of knowing Maya Angelou. She was, uh, I knew her um, from when I was quite young um, and met her through a, a famous British socialist woman who went to America called Jessica Mitford. And, and they used to often come and visit England together and uh, um, Jessica Mitford was married to a civil liberties lawyer and I knew him. And so I got to know Maya, and then Maya became incredibly famous. And, and, uh, and she always drew her friends into her joy for life, and there were always great parties, and I sometimes would have parties in, for her in, in my house when she came to London. But then I went to great parties in America with her, and I just loved, um, uh, and so I rise but I didn't feel it was proper for a, for a white woman to, to... Because it's so much a wonderful poem for a black woman to, to read. Oh, I, um, I, I don't know. I don't know, Helena. I've had that poem read out. I feel, of course, in, I mean, in, I'm, I'm in, Irish. Remember there was a whole thing exactly. about the Irish are the blacks of yes, Europe. Yes, so, you know, I feel yes, that yes. Um, if, as long as you're in a minority, or you, you could claim that. But, um, uh, but I know that you're going to have it read in the, in the course of this evening. The two poems I did choose were A Worker Reads History by, oh, by Bertolt Brecht. Yeah. And it's a wonderful poem. I mean, it's very simple, really, in the idea it plays with. And it plays with this business of who, who gets to tell the story of what happens. Who, where does, you know, where does the, who, who lays claim to the narrative? And for so long, um, ordinary folk were left out of history. It was the history of kings and queens and great men, basically. And women were left out of it. And so the telling of history is so important. And we, we have to always sort of revisit, revisit events and say, yeah, but what was happening to ordinary folk? Yeah. What was happening to ordinary folk at that time? Um, and, you know, we talk about, you know, as if Winston Churchill won the Second World War. Well, you know, actually... Single-handedly. Single-handedly. Uh, hmm? Single-handedly. Single and, you know, and Thatcher and Fulton's and all that stuff, you know, and, and the lives that are lost are forgotten about and the ways in which people's lives were torn apart by actually having to, to take part in wars. So um, I, I, I feel it's a, it's a really wonderful um, uh, poem okay. about the role of the worker. And then the other poem that I chose was protest by Ella Wheeler Wilcox. I'd never heard of Ella Wheeler Wilcox. And, uh, and she quite clearly was a force of... Uh, she, was a, she, was a, she was a very great, important poet in the 19th century poetic scene in America. In America. But it's not very well known here. And, yeah. and, and, she, and it's a very interesting poem because, I mean, she's really talking about the importance of protest. And my God, do I feel it now, yes. where, um, you know, suddenly protest has come... I spent my whole of my 20s, let me tell you, on, a street, on the streets, on the streets <laughs> of London, you know, from the late uh, uh, 60s. Um, against the Vietnam War and then uh, protesting against many things. I used to have a banner which was, was on a stick and it was behind the wardrobe and we used to take it out and it said, kill the bill. <laughs> and, uh, and the bill was oh, any piece of legislation that was going through that and we didn't like it. You know, you, kill the bill. You know, you know when I first came to London I saw that on walls <laughs> and I thought People Who must hate Bill. Bill. <laughs> <laughs> Who is Bill? Anyway, I had that. You know, it was a, it, I don't know where it is now. Anyway, so, but um, protest has come back, and, yeah. and, and we need... And I will be there on Friday protesting yeah. against yes. Trump, I can yeah, assure you. I think, um, I think a lot of people will be there. Yeah. And, uh, and, and, I, and I remember that amazing protest at the time of the Iraq war, and it made us think, is protest worth is it worth the candle? Yeah. But actually it is. Yeah. We have to have those moments uh, where we, we say, we, you know, we want our voice to be heard and we want to be counted. It doesn't matter that Trump isn't going to see it, but let me tell you, he will secretly be looking. <laughs> He'll want to see whether there's any truth in it. So I'm going to read these Please, two wonderful. Looking forward to it. Thank you very much, Elena. <laughs> A worker reads history, um, Bertolt Brecht. Who built the seven gates of Thebes? The books are filled with the names of kings. Was it the kings who hauled the craggy blocks of stone? And Babylon, so many times destroyed, who built the city up again each time? In which of Lima's houses, that city glittering with gold, lived those who built it? In the evening, when the Chinese wall was finished, where did the Masons go? <laughs> Imperial Rome is full of arts of triumph. Who reared them up? Over whom did the Caesars triumph? 
Byzantium lives in song with all her dwellings' palaces. And even in Atlant Atlantis of the legend, the night of the seas rushed in, the drowning men still bellowed for their slaves. Young Alexander conquered India. He alone? <laughs> Caesar beat the Gauls. Was there not even a cook in his army? <laughs> Philip of Spain wept as his fleet was sunk and destroyed. Were there no other tears? Frederick the Great triumphed in the Seven Years' War. Who triumphed with him? Each page of, his, of victory, at whose expense the victory ball. Every ten years, a great man. Who paid the piper? So many particulars, so many questions. Thank you. And then protest by Ella Wheeler Wilcox. To sin by silence when we should protest makes cowards out of men. The human race has climbed on protest. Had no voice been raised against injustice, ignorance and lust, the Inquisition yet would serve the law and guillotines decide our least disputes. The few who dare must speak and speak again to right the wrongs of many. Speech, thank God, no vested power in this great day and land can gag or throttle. Press and voice may cry loud disapproval of existing ills, may criticize oppression and condemn the lawlessness of wealthy, of wealth-protecting laws that let the children and childbearers toil to purchase ease for idle millionaires. Therefore, I do protest against the boast of independence in this mighty land. Call no chain strong which holds one rusted link. Call no land free that holds one fettered slave. Until the manacled slim wrists of babes are, lo are loosed to toss in childish sport and glee, until the mother bear no burden save the precious one beneath her heart, until God's soil is rescued from the clutch of greed and given back to labor, let no man call this the land of freedom. Oh, wonderful. Thank you very much, uh, Helena, for that beautiful reading. Um, next, we have Giles Dooley, who is um, a highly lauded British documentary photographer and photojournalist. His work focuses on humanitarian issues, working around the globe with NGOs and international organizations like Médecins Sans Frontières. His current project, a new charity which he set up, is called Legacy of War, and it, and it explores the long-term effects of conflict worldwide. While Giles is getting himself mic'd up, I will tell you that I've known him for a long time. He's a man of great courage and compassion. And um, we're going to be talking about the work he does and about his, his poetic choices. Charles, uh, whenever I see you, you're either just coming from or going to some land torn by war. Um, where have you just come back from? Um, this year I've mainly been working in uh, Ukraine on the front line there in, in Donbass region, um, South Sudan and Iraq in Mosul. And actually what I've been doing is a story of three children, three 14-year-olds who live in those three conflict zones. Because we tend to look at wars as individual conflicts, as individual things, and I'm interested in the themes that run across it. So for me, the experiences, the stories I hear are identical, whatever place I go to. So the work this year is very much about bringing those stories together. And do you find in all of this, um, 
I mean, you get to see a lot of harrowing. I mean, I've spoken to you about this. I've been to many of your events. And it, it, it's very hard to contain one's tears and one's outrage. Do you find uh, a space for poetry in any of all of this? Does poetry speak to the kind of work that you do? Yeah, I mean, a huge part of the influence on, on my life uh, was the poetry of, of the First World War. Um, you know, there, there's, there's this connection between photography and poetry, I think actually works really, really well uh, together. Because there are things I can't do in a photograph that a poem can, and there are things that a photograph can do that a poem can't do. But actually together, they're the most powerful. So when I, when I was growing up, you know, I was really interested in, in war and, and history. But I remember it was the First World War poetry was the first time I questioned the ideas that I had about what war was. And to this day, you know, wherever I travel, I always take uh, poetry with me. And you, know, you sit in Syria, you sit in, in South Sudan, you sit in Afghanistan, whether that be with American soldiers, Hezbollah, whoever. And I often get these poems out from the First World War, Soon, Owen, and share those. And the resonance in every conflict, they kind of go, yeah. I, mean, I remember actually, um, I'm sort of jumping the gun slightly, but one yes. of the poems you know, I'll be talking about. If you imagine a scene, um, this is um, you know, something that sounds like the First World War, but walking from some barbed wire, you clear the barbed wire away and you step forward, and then you walk across this very, very muddy field that you can hardly get your feet in, um, and you're all lined up, and you just walk at a very slow pace. The job you're doing, the aim of what you're doing, is you're wanting somebody who's hiding somewhere on the other end of the field to shoot at you. You're actually waiting for that to happen. That's the purpose of the mission. So you walk across this muddy field, and I remember thinking, you try to make yourself as small as you can, and try as tiny as you can, and you walk across this muddy field, because the bullet that hits you, you won't hear it even. It will hit you before you hear it. And I remember that was in Afghanistan in February 2006. Um, sorry, in February um, 6, 2011. And walking across that muddy field, I thought, this is exactly the same as, as something from the from First, first World, World War. And at the end of the day, you know, we may see things, you may see Afghanistan, you see all the helicopters and all technology. No, for the grunt on the ground, it's exactly the same experience. So I came back from that mission, and I got out the poems of Sassoon and Owen, mm. and we're reading them to these American soldiers, these grunts from the 101st Airborne. And they were like listening, and they were going, fuck yeah, fuck yeah, because they got it. <laughs> and they got it, because that resonance, it doesn't matter, it's 100 years difference. Those words are exactly the same for any person that's experienced conflict that stepped out in front of, of guns firing at them. The experience is identical, and that poetry captures it better than any other photographer, any other way. Charles, you had some images you wanted to talk about. Do you still want to do that? Yeah, sure. Can you, can, can we you know make me it, once I get talking. Yes. Stop. Can we make it really brief? Yep. Because I want you to read some yep. poems. And we want to get to that football match. Yes. Right. So, yeah, we want, we want to do everything. We want to do, do everything. everything. Yeah. Yes. So, have you, have you given instructions to start the images? I, I assume that's what's happening right now. Do you want to just tell folks about... Yeah, I mean, but again, I'll get back to this thing of, of the poetry and uh, you know, what it means so much to me. You know, uh, one of the other poems I'm going to read is, is a haiku. And the thing that influences me in photography is the more I've done photography, the more actually I strip everything back. And so you'll see a lot of these photographs are just of hands, of intimate moments, of little details of life. This is in South Sudan. Um, and that very much, again, the poetry has influenced the way that I work as a photographer. So for me... But by concentration of, on image. I mean, look at that. That's yeah. a story in a hand. Yeah. Yeah. And it's yeah. that thing of cutting everything you don't need back. Yes. And so, you know, the photographer has become more about details, about intimacies. There's about tiny moments between a couple. Because for me, that's universal. You know, I get called I'm a war photographer. I'm not. I never photograph war. I photograph love. And if you see in all my work, it's always about the relationships between people. It's people holding hands. It's a daughter and a father. I photograph love. It just happens to be in conflict zones. I never take a photograph of anyone firing a gun. You'll never see a picture that I've done of, of any action. I just document love. Thank you for that clarification. Thank you. Are you ready, you ready to go read? Hmm? Are you ready to go read? Yes. Okay, let's, let's do, do it. it. Does anyone know what the score is, by the way? <laughs> We're going to be checking through the whole, through the whole event. Anthem for Doomed Youth by Wilfred Owen. What passing bells for those who die as cattle. Only the monstrous anger of the guns, only the stuttering rifles' rapid rattle can patter out their hasty orisons. 
No mockeries now for them, no prayers, nor bells, nor any voice of mourning save the choirs, the shrill, demented choirs of wailing shells, and bugles calling them from their sad shires. What candles may be held to speed them all? Not in the hands of boys, but in their eyes shall shine the holy glimmers of goodbyes. The pallor of girls' brows shall be their pall, their flowers and tenderness of patient minds, and each slow dusk a drawing down of blinds. Beautiful. Thank you very much. I've had a bit of a debate about pronunciation on this one today. I, I was at, weirdly, by coincidence, doing an interview with a Japanese um, radio station this morning, and I very so proudly said, and I'll be reading a poem by, by Basho. They were like, huh? <laughs> so there's a lot of debate about how to pronounce it. How would you pronounce it? Um, I'd say Basho. Yeah, no, everyone I know says Basho, but they, there's no poet called Basho. There's no Basho. <laughs> this is Poets Grieving Over Shimmering Monkeys by Matsu Basho. Poet Grieving Over Shivering Monkeys. What of this child cast out in autumn wind? Beautiful. Thank you, Thank you. Thank you very much, Darrell. Um, our next guest is uh, Laurie Penny. Laurie is an award-winning journalist, essayist, public speaker, writer, activist, and author of seven books, including Unspeakable Things. Hello, Laurie. Hello. It's a great honor to be here. My God. It's wonderful that you're here. We, we love your voice and your spirit. You're, oh, thank you. You're a feminist and a humanist, a kind of great combination. Thanks. Well, I mean, I... I, I think there are some feminists who aren't humanists, but like, we, we don't talk to them. Feminists <laughs> love to fight each other. It's, uh, um, yeah, it's, uh, I'm not the... My sister is a very fine poet. I think there's, like... I was thinking about this coming up here. Like, you can have... I think, like, the Rossettis and the Brontes show us that you can have several writers per family, but only one poet. <laughs> like, and I, like, I do try and write poetry because I feel like every, every writer should try and write poetry in the same way that every athlete should try and do like, push-ups. But not every athlete is a gymnast, and sometimes you just got to accept that. So, Eleanor Penny, she's great. She has a podcast. Like, it's great, seriously. Anyway. But. So, Laurie, you, you, you chose, you've, you've got special reasons for the poems you chose today. Do you want to tell yeah. us? First of all, tell me... If, um, briefly, if poetry has a kind of uh, central effect on your writing life or yourself as a human being. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I, uh, poetry and, and plays, I, again, like, I, I try to write them all the time because I love poetry. And it, I feel like poetry, reading poetry for me is like watching The Great British Bake Off in that, you know, you watch it and then you become convinced that you too can bake. And you can't, you really can't, but it's, you know, you just, you know, you're like, baking is so, poetry is so important. It is, and like, like that can, what is it, I think it's Henry James says it's the simultaneous contraction of form and expansion of meaning. And I think you, like, I try and write for the ear all the time, and particularly the second poem, which is uh, St. Crispin's Day, which is the famous speech, um, is a masterpiece of rhetoric. And as a columnist and as somebody who does like, political nonfiction, I, I think a lot about rhetoric and forms of persuasion and speech making. It's wonderful. I mean, so the first poem I'm going to read is um, by Adrian Reach, who is the poem was new to me. I've just sort of discovered the work of Adrian Reach this year, and um, and she's such a badass. Um, but it's it's based it's about totalitarianism and about the, you know the shock to see dreadful things that you imagined happening elsewhere suddenly happening in your own country and it's also um, about I feel that Adrienne Rich in a lot of her, her writing and her essays struggles with like what's the point of art in times of political horror and I think she never quite 
gets he's there. Not, yeah, he's never quite convinced. Yeah, she's and, never and convinced tension, herself. And that tension is there. It's very poem. evident in that poem. That's yeah. why I picked this, because I think a lot of artists, creative people I know are struggling with that very thing. Like, does what I do really matter? Does it count? Yeah, yeah and, and but the second poem I picked is, uh, when I actually pushed to be able to read this, is... Um, you pushed me. Yeah, really. I pushed... <laughs> oh, I didn't know, but... So, um, it's the St. Crispin's Day poem by, by Shakespeare from... Uh, Henry V, and um, I picked this for so many, partly because, you know, I'm never going to get the opportunity to say this on stage <laughs> again, ever. I mean, come on. But this is your stage. Yeah, but I mean, it's the most bro sonnet, probably, most bro soliloquy that Shakespeare and, probably ever wrote. And rather fitting for today, actually. Yeah, it's, I mean, yeah. well, if we, if we get through it, it'll be even more fitting, because it's about the Battle of Agincourt. Um, yeah, so, I mean, this poem for me is, and I'll, before I read it, I would sort of like say where it happens just to locate people, but it's, it's, it's about, the, for me, it's about toxic masculinity, basically. And so Shakespeare was a master of obviously many, everything, but he really got how to stir people up over nothing. Like, the, what this poem is about is basically persuading people to go and die because he wants them to. And there's no point to it. And it's just a big sort of, you know, there's this, there's this phrase going around the internet at the moment, big dick energy. I don't know if anybody's seen that. <laughs> but like this poem is that. It's pure big dick energy. And like, and it's really dangerous. Because like one thing, like this is why I'm not an actor. Like you, you like watch... Watch for this happening while I read the poem, because you will see, like, me getting extremely excited. And, and I, I really encourage you, like, if you buy this book, which obviously everyone should, like, read this poem to yourself, even under your breath, because it shows, like, what language can do and how it can get in your head and just the form and the rhythm of it. And it's really addictive, and, and that's the danger of it, and that's why I wanted to read so it. So you're reading it for its danger? Yeah, it's rather a than dangerous thing, and okay. this is what all our, the worst politicians right now do. Absolutely. Anyway, thank Laurie, you. Thank you. thank you very much. Yeah, thank you. Good. So um, this is uh, What Kind of Times Are These by Adrian Reich. There's a place between two stands of trees where the grass grows uphill and the old revolutionary road breaks off into shadows near a meeting house abandoned by the persecuted who disappeared into those shadows. I walked there picking mushrooms at the edge of dread but don't be fooled. This isn't a Russian poem. This is not somewhere else, but here, our country, moving closer to its own truth and dread, its own ways of making people disappear. I won't tell you where the place is, the dark mesh of the woods meeting the unmarked strip of light, ghost-ridden crossroads, leaf-mold paradise. I know already who wants to buy it, sell it, make it disappear, and I won't tell you where it is. So why do I tell you anything? Because you still listen. Because in times like these, to have you listen at all, it's necessary to talk about trees. <laughs> That's the part. <laughs> so. And, um, so this is uh, St. Crispin's Day, and because it's a play, um, so where it is, it's, it's the night before the Battle of Agincourt, which everybody knows, we won, yay, or something. Um, but they didn't know that, and Agincourt is like, they've decided to go and have a go at France, basically, to prove that Henry is the best king ever. And it was a shit idea, and they've got not enough dudes. And it's the night before the battle. They've really, really not got enough dudes. And some guy has just come up to Henry the night before the battle and gone, we've really not got enough dudes. And this is a retort to that. Um, and saying, look, look, all the dudes wish they could kind of go home because we're blatantly all going to die. So. What's he that wishes so? Says Henry. My cousin Westmoreland. No, my fair cousin, if we are marked to die, we are now to do our country loss, and if to live, the fewer men, the greater share of honour. God's will, I pray thee, wish not one man more. 
By Jove, I am not covetous for gold, nor care I who doth feed upon my... Total lie, by the way. It yearns me not if men my garments wear. Such outward things dwell not in my desires. But if it be a sin to covet honour, I am the most offending soul alive. No faith, my cuz, wish not a man from England. God's peace, I would not lose so great an honour as one man more, methinks, would share from me for the best hope I have. Oh, do not wish one man more. Rather, proclaim it, Westmoreland, through my host, that he which hath no stomach to this fight, let him depart. His passport shall be made, and crowns for convoy put into his purse. We would not die in that man's company that fears his fellowship to die with us. This day is called the Feast of Crispian. He that outlives this day and comes safe home will stand a tiptoe when the day is named and rouse him at the name of Crispian. He that shall live this day and see old age will yearly on the vigil feast his neighbours and say, Tomorrow is Saint Crispian. Then will he strip his sleeve and show his scars and say, These wounds I had on Crispian's day. Old men forget, yet all shall be forgot, but he'll remember with advantages what feats he did that day. And then shall our names, familiar in his mouth as household words, Harry the King. Bedford and Exeter, Warwick and Talbot, Salisbury and Gloucester be in their flowing cups, freshly remembered. This story shall the good man teach his son. And Crispin Crispian never shall go by from this day to the ending of the world, but we in it shall be remembered. We few, we happy few, we band of brothers, for he today that sheds his blood with me shall be my brother, be he never so vile, this day shall gentle his condition. And gentlemen in England, now abed, shall think themselves accursed, they were not here, and hold their manhoods cheap. What any speaks that fought with us upon St. Crispin's Day. You know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> Make America great again. Laurie, thank you very much for that feminist reading of St. Crispin's Day. I've never heard it read like that before. Before, um, before, I, before I call uh, my ne our next guest, um, I think it's kind of right to follow Shakespeare with this. I'll start to read it, and at some point, if you know who it is, you can join in or you can call out his or her name, whatever. Old pirates. <laughs> yes. Sold I to the merchant ships, minutes after they took I from the bottomless pit. But my hand was made strong by the hand of the Almighty. We forward in this generation triumphantly. Won't you help me sing these songs of freedom? Because all I ever have, redemption songs, redemption songs. Emancipate yourselves from mental slavery. None but ourselves can free our minds. Have no fear for atomic energy, because none of them can stop the time. How long shall they kill our prophet? While we stand aside and look. Some say it's just a part of it. We've got to, won't you help to, these songs of, because all I ever, redemption songs. <laughs> you will collapse if I start to sing. <laughs> My next guest is none other than the classically trained actor, David Calder. 
He has... He has, an, he has an impressive resume of accomplished work over a very long career, and he still looks so young. His television credits are numerous and include Bramwell, Bergerac, Enemy at the Door, Spooks, Cracker, etc., etc., etc. He's also starred in The World Is Not Enough, The Lady in the Van. I don't know if you've seen that wonderful film. And his most recent stage work uh, is playing Julius Caesar, in Nicholas Heitner's production, At the Bridge. David, as an actor, is poetry part of what you have to do to lift your voice beyond the roofs of the stage? Well, I mean, obviously with uh, Shakespeare and a lot of classically constructed plays, you're using the structures of poetry all the time. Um, but I think, I suppose the difference between listening to what other people have been saying tonight about what appeals to them, what moves them. Um, I start as a performer. I start uh, from... I mean, I could have put my finger on any page of this book and, uh, and enjoyed reading it out in public because there's something about, especially with these protest poems, that, that where the personality and the energy of the writer himself or herself is coming through in the shape of the words and the shape and construction of the poem itself. And that becomes the performer's vehicle. That's, that's the engine that you use to, uh, to, to, um, to be saying those words in a public arena, sharing them. Do you, have you noticed, from what you're just saying there now, have you noticed that there is a, um, a special freight of energy with political poetry? Very much so. And that, I think that, that the same poet writing about trees, flowers, rivers, when they write about what it is to be in prison, takes on a different tone. Do you feel that? Yeah, that's, that's true. I mean, in fact, that's one of the reasons why I chose part of these readings to read the Gerald Manley Hopkins. Um, because there I feel that the, the, the energy of those words, is like it, there's something that somehow is more spiritual about them. There's something that where a man's soul is speaking within the poetry. Um, with other, many of the other poems, there is uh, anger. With other poems, it, it's just the observation of truth, and the need and the desire to tell it like it is, um, so that people can understand and take strength from these things. But I do think there is a different kind of... Uh, I think it's inevitable. I mean, I think, clearly, the ones that I've chosen here are protest poems that speak for me. They're the ones that you go, yeah, I agree with that. Are you, are you a hugely political man yourself? Yeah, I have, yes, I have been since very young. So you're going to be there with us on Friday? Yeah? Most definitely. Absolutely. I'm just... The trouble is I'm, I'm, I'm in trouble with my local school for my daughter, who's been... Well, she's on protest as well. Well, she's been pretending to be ill and being absent all over the place, and... So I'm getting a letter from the council <laughs> saying you've got to attend, so I can't get her out of school. <laughs> I think I'll be shocked if I do. <laughs> Otherwise, she'd be there too. Oh, and brilliant. Why not? Wonderful. Do you want to tell us about the poems you've chosen well, before I, the, you read? The poem, I've chosen a kind of... I put, I put a few poems in a kind of an order for me, you okay. know, which is, again, that they really... Uh, they are just... Well, I mean, they speak for themselves. They're of this time. They, they just... They just resonate in the most extraordinary fashion, given everything you've been saying earlier and other people have been saying earlier. You know, we live in the terrible time of Trump and Brexit and all those things. And these poems, they sing. David, go sing to us. Okay. I'll Thank try. you very much. <clears throat> Sorry, I'll sort myself out here. first poem is by Ernest Hemingway. The age demanded. The age demanded that we sing and cut away our tongue. The age demanded that we flow and hammered in the bung. The age demanded that we dance and jammed us into iron pants. And in the end, the age was handed the sort of shit that it demanded. Ha, <laughs> ha,
This is The Glories of uh, Our Blood and State by James Shirley. The glories of our blood and state are shadows, not substantial things. There is no armor against fate. Death lays his icy hand on kings. Scepter and crown must tumble down and in the dust be equal made with the poor crooked scythe and spade. Some men with swords may reap the field and plant fresh laurels where they kill. But their strong nerves at last must yield. They tame but one another still. Early or late they stoop to fate and must give up their murmuring breath when they, pale captives, creep to death. The garlands wither on your brow, then boast no more your mighty deeds. Upon death's purple altar now, see where the victor, victim bleeds. Your head must come to the cold tomb. Only the actions of the just smell sweet and blossom in their dust. Beautiful. Thank you. This a poem by Bertolt Brecht in Dark Times. In dark times, will there be singing... Yes, there will be singing about the dark times. <laughs> this is a, a, next is, is a poem by Jeremy Hopkins in the snow, which I think is an extraordinary example of where the language itself, the sound of the language is, is just so integral to the meaning and the rhythm and everything else. It's, jazz, it's also really. one of my favorite poems in English language. Oh, oh dear, is it? <laughs> I, think, I think we're in for a treat to have this little... Yeah. Oh dear. <laughs> okay. <clears throat> In the Snade by Gerald Manley Hopkins. This darksome burn, horseback brown, his roll rock high road roaring down in coop and in coombe, the fleece of his foam flutes and low to the lake falls home. A wind puff bonnet of fawn froth turns and twindles over the broth of a pool so pitched back, fell frowning it rounds and rounds, despair to drowning. Degged with dew, dappled with dew, are the groins of the braise that the brook treads through. Wiry heathpacks, flitches of fern, and the bead-bonny ash that sits over the burn. What would the world be once bereft of wet and of wildness? Let them be left, oh, let them be left, wildness and wet. Long live the weeds and the wilderness yet. Hmm. And uh, in praise of Helen, I'm, she took me off guard when she mentioned the eighth second coming because I thought, oh my God, she's going to read it. <laughs> so that's my job gone. Okay. <clears throat> the second coming by W.B. Yeats. Turning and turning in the widening gyre, the falcon cannot hear the falcon earth. Things fall apart, the centre cannot hold. Mere anarchy is loosed upon the world. The blood-dimmed tide is loosed, and everywhere the ceremony of innocence is drowned. The best lack all conviction, while the worst are full of passionate intensity. Surely some revelation is at hand. Surely the second coming is at hand. The second coming. Hardly are those words out when a vast image out of the spiritus mundi troubles my sight. Somewhere in the sands of the desert, a shape with lion body and the head of a man, a gaze blank and pitiless as the sun, is moving its slow thighs, while all about it reel shadows of the indignant desert birds. The darkness drops again. But now I know that twenty centuries of stony sleep were vexed to nightmare by a rocking cradle. And what rough beast, its hour come round at last, slouches towards Bethlehem to be to born. Be born. Mm, wonderful. Finally, um, I just delight in the exquisite, vengeful nature of this poem, especially in the days of Trump. 
Um, it's Enemy by Langston Hughes. Yes. <laughs> yeah. It would be nice, in any case, to someday meet you face to face, walking down the road to hell. <laughs> As I come up, feeling swell. <laughs> David, thank you very much. Before I call my final guest, I, I felt I really, really ought to read this poem about to, I'm about to read. Because I don't think it's possible to read, to have an evening of protest poetry without having the voice of Pablo Neruda. This is Canto 12, from the heights of Machu Picchu. <clears throat> Rise up and be born with me, brother. From the deepest reaches of your disseminated sorrow, give me your hand. You will not return from the depths of rock. You will not return from subterranean time. It will not return your hardened voice. They will not return your drilled out eyes. Look at me from the depths of the earth, plowman, weaver, silent shepherd, tender of the guardian guanacos, mason of the impossible scaffold, water bearer of Andean tears, Goldsmith of crushed fingers, farmer trembling over the seed, potter poured out into your clay. Bring all your buried sorrows to the cup of this new life. Show me your blood and your furrow. Say to me, here I was punished because the gem didn't shine or the earth didn't deliver the stone or the grain on time. Point out to me the rock on which you fell and the wood on which they crucified you. Burn the ancient flints bright for me, the ancient lamps, the ancient whips, stuck for centuries to your wounds, and the axes brilliant with bloodstains. I come to speak through your dead mouth, through the earth, unite all the silent and split lips. And from the depths, speak to me all night long as if we were anchored together. Tell me everything, chain by chain, link by link, and step by step. Sharpen the knives you kept. Place them in my chest and in my hand like a river of yellow lightning, like a river of buried jaguars. And let me weep hours, days, years, blind ages, stellar centuries. Give me silence, water, hope. Give me struggle, iron, volcanoes. Fasten your bodies to me like magnets. Come to my veins and to my mouth. Speak through my words and in my blood. Thank you very much. Is Eleanor ready for a brief? Eleanor is not ready. Eleanor is ready for her brief before we have our last reader. <clears throat> Eleanor, do you want to share a poem with us? Do you want to tell us a little bit about the fact that you're one of the founders of 5 by 15 um, yes, I'm usually in the uh, position of introducing others and making them perform. So I think Ben is taking um, great joy in turning the tables and making me perform. And I can only explain my presence here um, is to encourage you all to read poetry out loud because let me tell you, you will not be intimidated by my reading. 
Uh, poetry is not my forte. Uh, I grew up in a very small town in Canada, <clears throat> which was right on the edge of the sea and hemmed in by mountains. I think that most people in the little town that I grew up in would have thought that there was much greater use in the world for something like duct tape than poetry. <laughs> but um, they were also great hippies, so perhaps they may have disagreed or at least conceded that this poem that I'm about to read had some merit. Bear with me. It's called The Times They Are A-Changing by Bob Dylan. Come gather round people wherever you roam and admit that the waters around you have grown and accept that it soon you will be drenched to the bone. If your time to you is worth saving, then you better start swimming or you'll sink like a stone for the, the times, times they, they are, are changing. changing. Come writers and critics who prophesize with your pen and keep your eyes wide, the chance won't come again. And don't speak too soon for the wheel's still in spin and there's no telling who that it's naming. For the loser now will be later to win. For the, for the times, times they, they are, are changing. changing. Come senators, congressmen, please heed the call. Don't stand in the doorway, don't block up the hall. For he that gets hurt will be he who has stalled. There's a battle outside and it's raging. It'll soon shake your windows and rattle your walls. For the, for the times, times, they are, they are changing. changing. Come mothers and fathers throughout the land and don't criticize what you don't understand. Your sons and your daughters are beyond your command. Your old road is rapidly aging. Please get out of the new one if you can't lend your hand. For the, the times, times, they, are, they are changing. The line it is drawn, the curse it is cast. The slow one now will later be fast, as the present now will later be past. The order is rapidly fading, and the first one now will later be last. For the times, the times they, are they are a change. Beautifully written. Thank you. Um, our final guest is uh, Zoe Bedo, who is a writer, artist, a maker of clothes, and uh, a poet. She's just about to publish her first novel. She has a very rich secret life, which she's not going to share with us tonight, but which will be evident in what she reads. Zoe, you want to tell us a little bit about yourself and about this poem you're about to read? Well, first I'd like to say I didn't choose this poem. This poem chose me, and I'm here by fate and fate alone. Thank you, Ben. Still I Rise by Maya Angelou. Essentially, this poem, for me, is about ascension, um, which is something I think everyone should be aiming for. There's nothing higher. And with that, I'd like you all to join me when you hear I'll rise or I rise to join in. You may write me down in history with your bitter, twisted lies. You may trod me in the very dirt but still, like dust, I'll rise. rise. Does my sassiness upset you? Why are you beset with gloom? Because I walk like I've got oil wells pumping in my living room. Just like moons and like suns with the certainty of tides, just like hopes springing high, still I'll, I'll rise. rise. Did you want to see me broken, bowed head and lowered eyes, Shoulders falling down like teardrops, weakened by my soulful cries. Does my haughtiness offend you? Don't you take it awful hard? Because I laugh like I've got gold mines digging in my own backyard. You may shoot me with your words. You may cut me with your eyes. You may kill me with your hatefulness. But, but still, still, like air, I'll rise. Does my sexiness upset you? Does it come as a surprise? that I dance like I put diamonds at the meeting of my thighs. 
Out of the huts of history's shame, I, I rise. Up from a past that's rooted in pain, I, I rise. I'm a black ocean leaping and wide, welling and swelling, I bear in the tide. Leaving behind nights of terror and fear, I, I rise. rise. Into a daybreak that's wondrously clear, I, I rise. Bringing you the gifts that my ancestors gave, I am the dream and the hope of the slave. I rise. rise. I, I rise. rise. I rise. I rise. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Oh, we're, we're kind of nearing the end of, the, of this part of the evening. Um, but before Daisy comes on to make the final announcements, I want to share a couple of very short poems, if I can find them. If I can find them. Uh, the first one is called... Huh. I thought when I say it's called, it would just be there. The first one is called... Huh. Where's it gone? It's uh, a poem by Basho. And it's called Come See the real flowers. And it's very simple. It goes like this. Come see the real flowers of this painful world. And I read that poem out aloud for people when they're looking at the Grenfell Tower. Come see real flowers of this painful world. The other one I want to read is by Alexander Pope. Very, another very short one. I am, I am His Highness's dog at Kew. Pray tell me, sir, whose dog are you? <laughs> but I don't want to end on that note. I don't want to end on that note. Does anybody know what note I should end on? You want to end on a happy note? Okay. I'm not sure I can find a perfect happy poem here for you. Okay. I'm going to end with two short poems. Two little short poems. This is called Roll of Thunder, Hear My Cry. It's an African-American spiritual. I wish I could sing it. You need to hear this being read with the voice of someone like Paul Robeson. Roll of thunder, hear my cry. Over the water, by and by. Old man coming down the line, whip in hand to beat me down. But I ain't gonna let him turn me around. But before you do, I'm going to read this funny poem. Not all of it, just a few lines. Called, I Shall Vote Labour. <laughs> by, by Christopher Logue. I shall vote Labour because God votes Labour. I shall vote Labour to protect the sacred institution of the family. I shall vote Labour because I'm a dog. I shall vote Labour because upper-class hoorays annoy me in expensive restaurants. I shall vote Labour because I'm on a diet. I shall vote Labour because if I don't, somebody else will. And I shall vote Labour because if one person does it, everybody will be wanting to do it. I shall vote Labour because if I don't vote Labour, my balls will drop off. I shall vote Labour because there are too few cars on the road. I shall vote Labour because I'm a hopeless drug addict. I shall vote Labour because I failed to be a dollar millionaire 
aged three, and so on and so forth. Thank you all for being a really wonderful audience. This is a time for poetry and protest. This is a time to seize our power as citizens. The time for being passive and letting other people make our decisions for us in our name is over. We really need to take to the stage of the world and let the world know that sometimes we say yes and sometimes we say no, and to let the world feel it. Thank you very much. See you Friday.